Thank you, worship team and choir, for reminding us while we're here. And I'll tell you what, there's nowhere I'd rather be right now uh, than right here gathered with you celebrating Jesus. And a big part of why God is doing all the things he's doing in our life uh, as a church is because of those who serve him faithfully, like Scott, who just brought that out for me. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, and uh, we have uh, men in our church who are called uh, to lead in service and care of our body. Uh, they're called deacons, and we're actually at a time in our church where we are accepting nomination for deacons. But as we think about that, I wanna introduce you to two men. So Micah, if you would come forward, and JJ, these are Micah Vaughn and J.J. Klein, and both of them have been part of our church for a little while, uh, Micah about two years, right, and J.J. really long time, actually, twice. Um, uh, both of them were ordained deacons in other churches, but they have uh, assumed the role, uh, and I've met with our deacon leadership, and uh, we are just excited that they're going to continue to serve the Lord in the ways they already are, and through leading our church in service, and so we rejoice in these two men, and we just wanted you to see them, and <laughs> You see them now. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we just thank you again for all you do and pray for them. And then uh, one of the things our deacons do is pray for me. Uh, every Sunday, typically, there's one deacon designated to do that. And so, Micah, since you're a deacon now, like right now, I'm going to hand you the mic and ask you to pray for me uh, and our service as we open the word to God. That's good. Let's pray. Dear God, uh, thank you for Pastor James here. Thank you for um, all the pastoral leadership in our church. Um, thank you for the week's and uh, countless hours they put in to uh, search the scriptures and make sure that they're conveying it accurately to the body and so that um, um, as, we, as we listen and apply in our lives each week, we, we draw closer to you. We just thank you for their example. I pray for Pastor James as he brings um, the scripture now. God, make our hearts vulnerable. Make them open. Anything that is distracting, I pray that you'll remove it. And then ultimately, God, may we be doers of the word and not just hearers and take that out and apply it in our families and our communities and our workplaces this week. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Micah. You can have that microphone too. Micah can have the mic. That was dad. That was a dad joke. That was bad. Okay. Um, we have been in a series for the last six weeks on intergenerational discipleship. We've been talking about the fact that the church should not just consist of multiple generations who kind of do their own thing, but rather the design that God has for his people is that the generations are learning from one another, and specifically that older generations are passing down uh, their faith to the younger generations through investing in them and serving them and teaching them. And I hope that this past six weeks was not it, that it was the beginning of us really making sure our mind uh, set is on that. But this morning, we are back in the Gospel of Mark and back to walking verse by verse through Scripture, which to me is like being back home after a trip. It was good, but it is good to be back home. We are in chapter 14 of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 14 is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Mark. It has 72 verses, so it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it. And it might be the heaviest chapter in the book of Mark as well, as it covers the betrayal, the arrest, and the conviction of Jesus that leads to his crucifixion in chapter 15. Mark begins this chapter with a transition from Jesus's teaching on the trials to come to these events that will take place. Mark chapter 14, verse one and two says, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. 
Passover was observed on the 14th day of the first month of the year. That's Nisan. It was taking place in what we would now call April. The Passover meal would take place the evening, which was the beginning of 15 Nisan. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread would last for a week after that. This was a time of celebration in Israel and specifically in Jerusalem. And during the joyous days of Passover, the scheming to kill Jesus was taking place. They were being strategic, though, because they wanted to do this in a way that did not catch much attention. The city's population would increase from about 50,000 to over 250,000 at the time of Passover. Think about Destin during spring break and during the summer. And John tells us why the chief priests and scribes were seeking to arrest Jesus now. In John's gospel, John chapter 12, verse 9 through 11, he says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Jesus made these claims to be the Messiah. And Jesus substantiated these claims through the acts of power. Specifically, in this instance, through the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And so because many people were then believing in Jesus, the religious crowd wanted to put a stop to that. Mark tells us of this plot throughout his entire gospel. And we'll talk much more about that uh, and the unfolding of this plot over the next several weeks. But today our attention is drawn to the insertion of a story by Mark here. Matthew also inserts it here into his account. Luke uh, chapter 7 has a similar story, um, but probably isn't the same account. And I think leaning into it takes off the focus of Mark. And John chapter 12 verse 1 seems to indicate that it took place six days before the Passover. We see this account as we read on, verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, apparently, Simon the leper was someone who was well-known so much that they would casually mention him or reference him in the Gospels, but we don't know anything else about him. It is likely that he was one of the lepers who Jesus previously healed because if he was still a leper, others present would not have come into the house because of uncleanness. We do learn from John's gospel that this woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus had risen, who had rose, Jesus had resurrected from the dead, and that Lazarus was there at this dinner as well with Jesus. Now, it was customary in that day to anoint the head of guest because of the hot and dry climate. Then it would create a nice fragrance for the meal. But what's taking place here is much more than that, which is why it gets the reaction that it does. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. The phrase said to themselves indignantly can be translated snorted. So it's like someone hears something they don't like or sees something they don't like and they go, you know, or something like that. I think I may have heard a few of you do that in a sermon or two every once in a while. And I know I hear that at my house when I tell people to pick up their things. Um, This word here that they use for wasted means it's destroyed. They're saying she destroyed this. This thing was completely wasted, destroyed by her. Now, the oil that was typically used for anointing a guest head was worth about a penny. This is not that typical oil. This is nard, a costly oil from India. 
and she breaks the entire bottle. John says it's a pound of nard. The objection here is not to the act, but to the extravagance of the act. You see, giving a gift at uh, Passover to the poor was actually a customary thing. And so it's very likely that they're saying, hey, this could have been used for that gift. There's a lot of us. This could have been used to meet that obligation that we feel. But here's what Jesus says in verse six. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, when the word is translated trouble her, why do you trouble her? It's probably not quite strong enough of a word. The New American Standard Bible translates it as bother. It's from a root word that means to cut. So you cut me deep. You cut me real deep just now. They don't like what she is doing, and they react to it with strong objection and disdain for her action. But what she is doing, Jesus says, is not bad, it is beautiful. And Jesus gives perspective to what she is doing and tries to correct their perspective by saying, you will always have the poor, but you won't always have me. Now, I agree with most scholars when they say that this woman did not know what she was fully doing. Jesus tells us that God was using her to anoint his body for burial, like a sacrifice is being anointed and prepared to be offered up. And he says that what she has done will be proclaimed wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And, and Jesus is right. We are talking about this today. This prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled when Mark and Matthew recorded the statement and the gospels began to be read widely. And while I believe this is a one-time occasion, I think it also reveals some important things to us about worship and our lives. The first thing that I think it reveals to us is that worship is sacrificial. Worship, the idea of worship is sacrificial. In verse six, it says that Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus is saying is her act, or that her act here is a beautiful thing in God's eyes. Verse three says that this this ointment, this jar that she had was very costly. The gospels tell us that it was worth 300 denarii or basically a year's wages. You would work six days a week, so that's about a year's wages. They may not be saying it was exactly worth that, but basically their point was it's worth a year's salary. I want you to think about that. In this one moment, she takes something that is worth a year's salary and uses it to worship Jesus. Pliny the Elder suggested that this is likely a family heirloom passed on from one generation to another, from mother to a daughter, or maybe from a grandmother to a mother to a daughter. So this is perhaps the only thing that she actually has that reminds her a physical representation of her mother or of her grandmother. I want you to think about that. Then she takes that thing which is so important to her and uses it in this one moment for this one Act. 
And that is precisely what Jesus is affirming about her act and about her gift. Look at verse eight. It says, she has done what she could. I think that phrasing is so powerful there. She has done what she could. You see, worship is not about doing what others are doing. Living a life of worship is not about how you compare with other people. It's not about whether or not you get to the standards and goals that you wanna have in your life and you're able to do those things for God. What God says of this woman, she's done what she could. That's the Christian life. It's doing what we can for God. It's offering what we have for God. When Paul explains giving to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter nine, he kind of explains it and then he, he summarizes it and he says, the, the, verse six, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul says, here's the point of giving for the Christian. If we give with tight fist, then our hands are not open to receive freely from God. But if we give Bountifully, we reap bountifully with open hands. And God does not want people who are doing this reluctantly or because they feel obligated to do this. He wants people who delight in giving to him. And God is the one who's able to make all grace abound to you in your life. This is kingdom logic. C.T. Studd, who was a missionary and has an awesome name, said that whenever he was going to the mission field, he and his family were going to the mission field, he, he was from a pretty wealthy background, and so he gave away most of his inheritance, but he saved a good portion of his inheritance back in case something were to happen to him so that his wife would be taken care of. And he writes that his wife asked, why did you keep all that money back for me? And he said, well, I wanted you to be okay if something happened to me. And she said, do you think that Jesus can only look after you and he can't look after me? Give my part away as well. And so historically, they gave it to General Booth of the Salvation Army. Now, what was the logic here? Well, C.T. Studd writes, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice I could ever make for him could ever be too great. That is the logic of the kingdom. That is the mindset of the Christian. In light of who Christ is, we surrender and we live sacrificially. If you're translating this phrase in 2 Corinthians 9 of cheerful giver, it really does mean that we give hilariously. Like it's almost comical what it means to give to God. I, I, and I've heard this phrase used before. I don't like this phrase because I'm a very logical person, but people use this phrase when it comes to their finances over the years, and they say, God math. But I understand what they're saying. They're saying, it doesn't make sense how I've given to God and done the things I've done for God and made the decisions we've made in our life, and God has taken care of us the way that he has. As a believer, when you begin to give faithfully to God over the years, 
and you kind of look back and you see the amount that you've given, it's almost hilarious to think that God would use that much through you and you would be okay. And honestly, when it comes to serving and living for God, if you really take an honest reflection at who you are and your inadequacies and you think God uses me to be a part of that, it's comical. And so worship is this idea that we understand who the king is, we understand what he's worthy of, and really we're willing to give him whatever he asks. Worship is sacrificial. The second thing that I think this text reveals to us is that sacrificial worship is not always in line with what is pragmatic. Sacrificial worship is not always in line with what is pragmatic. Look at verse four. It says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now I want you to think about what could have been done with a year's wages. How many people could that have fed? How much clothing could that have purchased? How many widows and orphans could have been helped? Now don't be mistaken, God cares about the poor. This is, caring for the poor is instructed of God's people and celebrated throughout the Bible. One clear example of this is in Psalm 41, verse one and two. The psalmist says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is, blessed, he is called blessed in the land. You do not give up to the will of his enemies. I mean, there's this celebration here of those who are actively taking care of the poor. Jesus tells us that we are to take care of the hungry, feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. In fact, when he's asking people about their faith, he says, you didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't clothe me when I needed clothes. And they said, when, what are you talking about? And he said, you didn't take care of the poor. And if you're not taking care of them, you're not taking care of me. You're not considering me. In Mark chapter 10, the rich man says, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, okay, sell all your possessions. Give them to the poor and follow me. Don't, don't fixate more on your possessions than, follow, than, than me, and so give them freely to the poor. God cares about the poor, and he clearly wants his people to be his hands and feet in caring for the poor. We as believers should ensure that we do everything we can that people are not going hungry. And we as believers should ensure that we are doing everything we can that people have shelter. And we as believers should absolutely be doing something to care for orphans and widows and sojourners or refugees. But here Jesus says something that if you don't slow down and listen, seems contradictory to all of that. He says in verse seven, for you always have the poor with you and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. It is not contradictory. What Jesus is saying is that taking care of the poor is always a part of living for God. It's always a part of living for the kingdom. God has said this to his people ever since he established a people for himself. When the laws are given out in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, this is what the word says. And I believe Jesus had this in mind as he says this. He says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Deuteronomy says, for God's people, there's always poor people around them, and we should always care about those poor people. What Jesus is saying here is not contradictory. He's saying it is both and, not either or. 
It is both giving and worship to exalt Jesus Christ and being someone who meets the needs that are around you. What I think Jesus is saying here is unique to this situation, but also applicable to our lives. It's unique in the sense that God was using Mary's sacrifice to anoint Jesus's body for burial so that in in one of many ways, he would be the fulfillment of what the Old Testament foreshadowed about the sacrifice that we needed. But it's also applicable in the sense that we as believers in Christ should be people who worship through sacrificial giving. And in addition to that, care for the poor. But something you will notice is that people often object to sacrificial giving to God through the church because they'll say things like, I don't see how it's practically benefiting. Now, perhaps this is because their church isn't transparent. Perhaps this is because they're not involved in leadership and making those decisions and so they don't see a way that um, is not deemed. Perhaps it's because Indeed, in their situation, it's not. But there's this mindset, this barrier that's put up that says, I'm not going to give to God in this way because I don't see the practical benefit of it. And then I've also experienced that people preserve money to be used for this great opportunity. They're waiting for this great moment to give to something where they make an impact versus seizing the opportunities that are always in front of them. And again, what I would suggest to you is that it is both and not either or, that it is both giving to God out of a sacrificial heart, trusting him regularly, and being available to meet the needs that arise around you. Now, I understand the tension. When I was in my 20s and just starting out and being a pastor, um, I kind of thought, why does the church need a building? And why does the church really need to spend money on any of that kind of stuff? And they shouldn't. And even I thought, you know, hey, does, do pastors really need to be full time? And, and, and I'll say a church doesn't have to have a building. In fact, we have brothers and sisters all over the country, that, all over the world that are in churches that don't have buildings. And there are many bivocational pastors or, or volunteer pastors. And people ask me all the time, what would you do if money didn't matter? I'm like, the exact same thing. I really would do the exact same thing. I just figure out a way, you know, I'd have more time to do it. I don't know. Uh, but this is what I'm called to do, what I would do. And so part of that came from some legitimacy to see problems with the way the established church had done things. And part of it came from just a rebellious, not trusting attitude as a 20-something. But here's what I've come to realize. It's both and. The church should, if they can, do things to ensure that Christ is exalted through worship on a consistent basis and not to the neglect of meeting the needs around them. But also something needs to be very clear. The primary focus of the church should be the spreading of the gospel across the globe. And so social needs are good, but if a church is meeting social needs but is not meeting the spiritual needs that exist, then the church is no longer following the model that Jesus set for the church. We are called to advance the gospel and to support missionaries in this country and beyond. The exaltation of Jesus is the primary means. And it's both and. As we are doing that, we are meeting the needs as a means to the gospel. And I'll just say that it's not always pragmatic. Living this way, being a church this way, or living as an individual this way is not always pragmatic. But here's what Jesus told 
us when he was teaching on giving and worrying about tomorrow and planning. He says this in Matthew 6.33. Seek first, or but seek first, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. He's saying, look, if God and his kingdom are first, if God and his glory are first, I'm going to take care of you. We as a church have made it, made it a point that says we don't just wanna grow our church, we wanna, please tell me you know. Okay, you unconfidently know, but good. Uh, build the kingdom. That means we don't just wanna grow as a church. We want our church to have an impact on other churches. So a couple years ago in 2020, we sent 40-something people uh, to help plant Anchor Church. Sounds great, celebrate it. Our administrator knows a lot of those people tithe here. And it's, he didn't say this, but and it's, I don't think, to me. And it's 2020, and so we sent those people out. And then this upcoming year, we have the plans to continue that partnership. We're financially supporting them, but to add two more churches, Lord willing, uh, that we're gonna partner. I'm in talks this week with another church that wants to plant in this area and, and talks with a church that wants some revitalization help. We may be asking people to go to those churches. And the reality is when you do that, you're losing attendance, you're losing serving, you're losing giving. And I, Here's what I will tell you. In those two years, our church has almost doubled in attendance. And our giving has increased by 25 to 33%. And it's still the right thing to do if not. But what I am experiencing is God is saying, if you are going to be a people who put my kingdom over your glory and your church, I am with you. And what I am telling you about your life is if you say I'm a person who I'm gonna be about the kingdom of God, God is with you. We are often always asking God, bless me, help me, be with me. Jesus said in the Great Commission, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I've commanded you. And I will be with you to the end of the age. Maybe the tension in our life of why we don't experience God the way we think we should experience God is because we're inviting him into our life and the things we want to do instead of saying, God, what are you doing and how can I join you there where God promises to be with you and to meet your needs? That's the Christian life. It's not our lordship asking Jesus to serve us. It's Jesus is Lord and I want to serve him and I want to do it with a glad heart because of what he has done for me. And we might have to give up some things to do that. It's not always pragmatic. And that leads me to my third point. And I hope you hear my heart as I say this. A greedy heart is at odds with sacrificial worship. A greedy heart is at odds with sacrificial worship. Look, there's some freedom in this discussion about giving. I don't think I ever mention you need to give 10%. I have told you before, I believe in our context, 10% is the basement. I believe that God has given us in America, for most of us, a disposable income that we can give more than that, and we could still meet other needs as well. So there's some freedom, if you don't believe that, to discuss that. We're not gonna split hairs on that. But here's what I would say. If there is greed in your heart, it's going to blind you to seeing what Mary saw. And that is where the tension is coming from for some of you when it comes to giving. And that is where the tension is coming from in this text. John makes it very clear where it's coming from. Look at John chapter 12, verse four through six. Here's what he says. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help 
himself to what was put into it. He said this objection came from Judas. Others might have said it, but it came from Judas. And the reason Judas objected and said that is because he wanted more money to use for himself. And that is where Judas's greed ultimately carries him. Mark chapter 14, verse 10 and 11 says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And we'll talk more about Judas in the coming weeks, but ultimately, when Judas realized that Jesus wasn't going to give Jesus the things that Judas wanted, Judas betrayed Jesus for something else he wanted. Mary uses a valuable ointment here to show her adoration to God. And there are those who are upset about this, mainly Judas, because it could have been used for other purposes. He says it could have been used for the poor, but he wasn't going to sell it to give to the poor anyway. So his objection is theoretical and hypothetical. And what I have found is that most people who object to the idea of giving to God sacrificially through the local church, which I love you if you disagree, but it's 100% the model of the New Testament, giving to God through the local church. But those people who typically object to the idea have theoretical and hypothetical objections about the church. And I have found that most of those people who are critical of the church are not actually doing the things that they personally criticize the church for not doing. People say, the church should be caring for the homeless. How are you caring for the homeless? The church should be doing things about vulnerable children. What are you doing for vulnerable children? You see, it is both and. It's worship of God sacrificially, trusting him, and caring for the poor. And here's what you'll find if you dig into the church. It's about 20% of the church who are, they're giving to God, tithing, whatever you want, sacrificial giving, and they're doing all these things. They're doing 80% of the work. I would say in our church, it's about 30 to 35% doing 70 to 65%. So we're doing better than most. I do think that's why we're as healthy as we are. But still, here's what breaks my heart and more importantly, what matters to God. That's 60 to 65% or 70% that are not sacrificing anything or revolving their life in any way around the fact that Jesus is Lord. I read Psalm 41 earlier, which tells us about God's blessing on those who consider the poor. This is the mentality we should possess. I'm gonna meet the needs that exist around me. But Christianity, listen to me, is not just do-goodery. It's humility that leads to this kind of surrender and this kind of sacrifice. Because if you read on, the psalmist goes on to say this in Psalm 41, verse four. As for me, I said, O Lord, Be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. You see, the psalmist is saying our mentality isn't, oh, let me help those who are less fortunate. Our mentality is God has helped me as a sinner. And I have to believe that Mary, hearing the gospel message over and over again because of her proximity to Jesus, was broken over her sin, and that's why she broke this bottle. But also, Mary was the sister of Lazarus. And Mary knew of the resurrection power of Jesus. Christian generosity is centered around this idea, burial and resurrection. Christian generosity is fueled by the source that we are sinners, that we dug our own grave, 
and that Christ died and he came into the grave and he rose from the grave and he has resurrection power and he has promised those of us who are in him the resurrection. And that's why we give. Yes, it is good to be disciplined, to best position ourselves, to make an impact on the kingdom of God, but it leads to the surrender and the sacrifice in Christ. This passion for Christ. And if any voice tells you to cool off and moderate your love for Jesus, do not listen to that voice. And even within the church, there will be people who tell you to not take your love for Jesus so seriously and be so committed because it is convicting for them to see you on fire for Christ. Do not listen to those voices. I've heard this saying a lot, and I I know it's well-meaning. Well-meaning people, good people have said this saying, to not be so heavenly minded that you aren't any earthly good. And what they mean by that is, you know, don't be just thinking about going and being with Jesus, that you're not actually doing anything on this earth. But I don't like that statement. Because when you're heavenly minded, when you understand who Christ is, when you understand what Christ has done for you, and you understand what Christ has promised to you, You say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What I would suggest to you is to be so heavenly minded that you are earthly good. To be so focused on who Christ is and what he has done for you and his resurrection power that it leads to a confidence in this life to serve him and to give to him. Treasure Jesus and eternity with him so much that all aspects in your life are lived in surrender and sacrifice and love. Treasure Jesus and eternity with him so much that your marriage is something you approach seeking to be a picture of Christ's love for you and not seeking some entitled version of happiness from that person. Treasure Jesus and eternity with him so much that you raise your kids to see their primary identity as sons and daughters purchased by the blood of God and not as validated by the things they do or do not accomplish. Treasure Jesus and eternity with him so much that your job is a tool to be used for your work for God, not merely a means for pride or possessions. Treasure Jesus and eternity with him so much that you cannot wait to join with the saints on Sundays or whenever it is to praise him for his faithfulness to you during the rest of the week and in anticipation of heaven. Treasure Jesus in eternity with him so much that you want to learn more and more about him and to live more and more like him. Treasure Jesus in eternity with him so much that you serve others so that he would be treasured, that he would be glorified, and that you do that even when you don't feel appreciated because of how Christ served you even when you did not appreciate him. Treasure Jesus in eternity with him so much that your first desire that the people of God would have around you is to see Jesus for the treasure that he is. Yes, I have hopes and I have dreams and I have plans and I have ways of doing things, but they revolve around my ultimate treasure, Jesus Christ. And I know that as long as he is glorified in my life, I am good because I am his. And I have to remind myself of this when things are good and those good things draw my affection away from him. And honestly, it's grace sometimes that all there is to, is to him to turn to. And I see that he truly is all that I need. And I work and I plan and I dream and I want and scheme and, and pragmatic to give and show him what he deserves and to help others see the grace that they don't deserve but neither did I in the first place. And this is not me giving in hopes that he will give me more. This is surrendered, sacrificial giving 
because I have all I need in Christ. And I want you to understand there is a contrast between the person who gives in hopes to receive from God and the person who gives because of the hope they have received from God. Christian giving is not reluctance. It's not under compulsion. It's realizing the treasure we have in Christ. And that's why we give and that's why we live for him. And I'll tell you this, Christian living is not less than giving to God sacrificially. It's more than that, but it is not less than that. And Judas, the problem with Judas is that he wanted something from Jesus. He did not realize what he had in Jesus. He didn't realize the treasure Christ was, and so he betrayed him for something he found that was more valuable. And I'm telling you that some of you who are listening to my voice this morning, the reason you haven't surrendered to Jesus and you don't live sacrificially for Jesus is because there are things you want, and you'll give up Jesus for those things. But when you realize who Christ is, it does something in your heart. But here's the thing about the gospel. Here's the thing about the Bible. What it tells us, it's not just about who Christ is. The, yesterday, my son wanted me to go and get some football cards for his friend. He was going to his birthday party. And um, so we went into a store and I didn't realize that they're like really hard to find. Like trading cards are hard to find these days because of COVID. I think people just use that as an excuse for things now, but uh, that's what they say. And so we had to go to a couple stores to find them. And, you know, it meant a lot to him that he would get this friend these cards. And so we did this and we finally found some. And when I was thinking about it, I was just think, reflecting on cards I had when I was a kid. And, um, we, were, we didn't really do football cards as much as I was a kid as baseball cards. And I remember having this Ken Griffey Jr., if you're a 90s kid, that's your favorite player, this Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, which I actually traded for like fruit snacks one time. So that's another sermon. When we talk about Esau and Genesis, we'll get there. But, um, but my friend had another Ken Griffey card that wasn't a rookie card. So mine should have been more valuable, right? But his card was more valuable than my Ken Griffey Jr. card, and here's why. Ken Griffey Jr. had signed the card. He autographed it. Now, I want you to think about that, how silly that is, that just some penmanship changes the value of that card. Those cards at face value, one would seem to be worth more than the other. But it was that autograph on that card that made it more valuable. What God is writing in his word and what God clearly explains to us in the person of Christ is that on you, you are made in the image of God. And the things that you might find valuable when you look at the way the world appraises them are different because of God's signature on you. And as a Christian, we realize that value that he has placed on us. And that's why Jesus said when they're debating giving to Caesar and all this stuff, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's God what is God's. Jesus is saying, you're God's. Give your life to him. You are God's son and daughter of God. Give in response to that. Pray with me. God, 
Lord, if there's somebody here today that they don't realize the treasure we have in Christ, they would just be so aware of how driven they are by an image or by possessions or whatever things of this world. And they would be confronted with the truth that our life deserves death. We bury, we dig our own grave. And they would be confronted with the truth that Christ has come. He died the death we deserve, that he came into the grave, he rose from the grave, and with him, who are us who are found in him, have resurrection. And like Mary, we would respond with, here's what I can do for you, because you deserve all that I have. As Christians in this room, may that be the way we confidently live our lives. Not out of obligation, but out of honor for the one who gave himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.